It's Kubrick's universe, the Stanley Kubrick podcast. I'm going to begin with about 45 minutes of dead air. Um, and just because I'm sleep deprived. And then we'll get straight into it. Does that sound good to everybody? I, I always sound better in dead air. I... <laughs> <laughs> and I have a face for radio. Hey everybody, welcome back into Kubrick's Universe. At the boards is a chap I'm very Jane Fonda, Stephen Rigg. I'm your host with a cracked head making a toast, Jason Furlong. Great party, isn't it? You know, Colin Maitland, in his short but brilliant film career, acted along heavyweights such as Lee Marvin, Ernest Borgnine, Charles Bronson, Jim Brown, John Cassavetes, Telly Savalas, Donald Sutherland, and Clint Walker. And that was all in the same film. Movie buffs out there may have already pieced together which film that was. It is, of course, Robert Aldrich's 1967 classic, The Dirty Dozen. Now, Colin played one of the infamous dozen, Seth Sawyer. Now, you're about to hear an interview we did with Colin in March 2022, when he told us some amazing behind-the-scenes stories about his time filming The Dirty Dozen, including, but not limited to, nearly falling to his death just prior to the film starting, being kicked out of Clint Walker's stretch limo in the middle of London, nearly being killed by Trini Lopez. Trini Lopez?! A set visit from Muhammad Ali, a poker game which lasted six months, and working on the biggest outdoor set ever built in the UK at that time. He also told us about working with the unusual Peter Sellers on A Shot in the Dark, as well as Richard Widmark's Ulcers and playing opposite Sidney Poitier in The Bedford Incident, and having lunch with Edward G. Robinson. But you guessed it, as this is Kubrick's Universe, we really wanted to speak to Colin about his experience playing Charlie Sedgwick in Stanley Kubrick's 1962 film, Lolita. His scene was set at Camp Climax, and Colin played directly opposite the inimitable James Mason. James Mason. And as this year does mark the 60th anniversary of that film, we thought we'd commemorate this criminally underappreciated, by some, not all, Kubrick masterpiece by talking to... Colin Maitland. Mm-hmm. 
Hey everyone, thanks for joining us in Kubrick's universe. Colin Maitland is an absolute genius who has saved the world seven times over. Mr. Maitland, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. Well, you know, be, being a genius is not easy. And sometimes people ask you to do things, but uh, th this I'm hoping will be easy. Wonderful. I want to launch right in, if I may, and uh, mm -hmm. want to start right at the very beginning as the song goes. Can you tell us how you got into acting, Colin? Well, I, I come from a theatrical family. Um, my father and mother were music hall artists. He was a, he was a comedian and dancer. And uh, my mother was a, uh, what they used to call a soubrette and, uh, and singer and dancer. And so I, I grew up in showbiz, as they say, and uh, got into, uh, I started, did my first role, um, I was living, I think, Halifax, Nova Scotia, I think it was. And at that time, the CBC, we uh, were doing um, a daily version of, uh, it, was, it was basically, it was a copy of uh, the BBC's long-running country series called The Archers, and it was called The Gillens. And um, my mother was doing a part in that. And the producer one day said, we, we, need a, we need a boy, a young boy for the family and so on. And you don't know anyone. She said, oh, yes, I do. My, my son. And so I started getting two or three times a week, hoiked out of school about 11.30 and put in a cab and sent to the CBC studios and doing my part in this, uh, in this series. And uh, needless to say, the other kids hated me for it, and who can blame them? <laughs> and uh, from then on, we we eventually returned to the UK. My parents were always rather homesick, and um, yeah, it just seemed logical to me to go into acting, and that's how it started. Interesting. Um, how long were you in Canada before you returned to the UK? Oh, uh, 14 years. Uh, wow. when I was uh, four when we went over there and uh, 18 when we came back. And it was partly in Canada, partly in the U.S. And, um, and I came back sounding American or, or North American at any rate. <laughs> and um, it, it, was, it was quite difficult uh, for me because although I was well aware I was uh, born in Britain and was certainly not unhappy about that fact, I felt more Canadian, more American than I did British. And I had to adjust to my own country. And it, it took some doing. There must have been a relatively short amount of time once you'd returned from the UK, whereupon you got into uh, more acting roles. Yeah. I, I, part of the problem, I think, with my acting career, such as it was, was that I was uh, I was full of uh, young uh, uh, enthusiasm and young uh, personality, and I was great at interviews and, and casting sessions, and I used to sort of talk my way into roles. Um, and the problem was, once I got on the sound stage or in the television studio or even on stage itself. I really wasn't very good, um, and I'm not a naturally modest person. I'm only too willing to to proclaim my abilities, but as an actor, uh, I really wasn't in the top flight at all. And I tried hard. I studied. I went to oh, I went to method classes. I went to yeah, acting studios. I went to all sorts of places, and 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 I worked hard at it. But somehow I couldn't translate that 
into a, a true performance on screen or, or on stage. I think we may have a world first for our listeners here, Stephen, which is the most honest and humble thing ever said publicly by a professional actor. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I was just thinking that. <laughs> there'd be plenty of witnesses who would agree with me, believe me. In fact, it's, it's quite... It's, uh, Somebody once said to me, you know, I've watched your, uh, I've seen you in various movies. So I made about 13 or 14 movie appearances. And he said, usually you get killed. And I said, yeah, I think this is written in as soon as the director realized. <laughs> and so a, a death scene is, is uh, strictly as quickly put into the film. And, um, you know, I learned to live with that. <laughs> Whereas it may have not been in the script when you first read it. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I used to think, well, this is good. I've got a, I've got quite a few lines here. And after a couple of days, the uh, director would say, Carl, we've just uh, rewritten this. We've got a new draft of the script and and um, you die. And I'd say, ah, right. Well, thank you very much. He said, don't worry, you'll get your full fee. So that was OK. I went home and I still got paid, but um, I didn't get uh, the part seemed to end uh, abruptly. You got paid to be dead. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, many people have since suggested I continue doing that. <laughs> I love it. All right. Um, well, if if I can attempt to transition from something as funny as that um, to just a, back to a bit of a straightforward, like, regarding the film you had made right before Lolita early on in your career, um, you worked with uh, Stanley J. Fury, uh, the year prior to Lolita in a film called uh, During One Night. So this being very early on in your uh, professional acting or screen acting experience, we're wondering uh, what was it like for you to be working on a movie at the ripe old age of 17 or 18? Well, you know, this was a, this was a historic movie for me personally because it was my first movie role. And it was also historic in, a, in another way in that I managed uh, single-handedly to close down permanently an entire film studio. What? Um, which was um, Walton Studios in South London, which had, had various names over, over the years. It had a long history of being a small film studio. They produced some pretty good films. And uh, I got a couple of lines uh, as a what was I, gunner on... Um, uh, an Air, U.S. Air Force, or it would have been then Army Air Force bomber in the Second World War, and uh, the, um, the the plane is strafed by the Germans, and the pilot, shall we say, gets injured in a very unfortunate place. Mm. And um, I come down from the uh, I come down in my bit. I come down from the uh, from the, the gunner turret and say. What do I do? I don't know what to do. What do I do? With all my emotion at hand. And mm-hmm. um, and that was it. Um, it was Sidney J. Fuel. I think it may have been his first film, certainly one of the first. And it was only later that I found out that that was the last movie they ever made at that studio. I, I think I may have tipped them over the edge. Um, a very One funny anecdote about that particular movie, many, many years later, must have been 20 years later, I think it was in The, uh, the Sun, uh, Sun newspaper uh, on Saturday used to do a, a, a little box feature what movie you should watch tonight and it said during one night 
um, a, a movie about um, romance and death in the Second World War, starring, get you, starring Colin Maitland and Susan Hampshire. Ooh. And I have... I've often looked at that with great glee, and I thought, my God, I starred in a movie and I only had three lines. I mean, any fool can start a film if you've got dozens and dozens of lines, but I did it with just three. That was my first film, and Lolita came second. Yeah, indeed. So with Lolita being filmed between 1960 and 61, of course, released in 62, um, that was still very early on in your young life, and... Um, we have to beg the question, how did you get the role? And was there an audition? Well, yeah, there, there was a read. There was a, uh, an audition and it was, uh, it, it was almost traumatic for me because the, they, uh, they held the auditions. They were actually, uh, they were just meetings with the director and, and to the producer at the old um, headquarters in Piccadilly in London, huge and very sumptuous, I think it was a 19th century building of uh, MCA who don't exist now, as I, as I understand. And so I went along there to meet Stanley Kubrick, of whom I had heard fearsome things, of course. He was uh, already, you realize that he was not someone who, who uh, suffered fools gladly. Mm-hmm. So uh, I finally waited patiently in the waiting room and the, the, uh, the reception said, okay, Mr. Mayhew, you could go in now. So I, I went in at huge oak doors with ma- massive... Uh, ornate brass door handles on them. And I went in to be look, hoping to be as cheerful and as cheeky as ever. And I turned around, closed the door behind me and went to walk up to the desk where Mr. Kubrick was. And I realized I still had the doorknob in my hand. <laughs> uh, I then retreated, going puced in color, to retreat into the door and I'm frantically trying to put the door back on the door. And Sandy Kubrick said, Oh, for Christ's sake, just leave the damn thing. Get over it. I thought, Well, there goes that movie. You know, I'll never get a part in this. I did get the part. Wow. It's almost a shame you didn't grab it on your way out as a keepsake. Yeah, I could have kept it as a souvenir. (laughs) Sure. It'd be in a museum somewhere now. (laughs) So, obviously, during uh, your meeting with Kubrick, he must have had you go over uh, something respective to the material and Lolita itself and the character you were auditioning for. I got a, a, a page of shooting script on it with my lines. I think I, I think I had about five lines, as I recall. It's such a long time ago, and um, and he, he seemed uh, it was very hard to tell with Stanley Kubrick. He he didn't uh, he, he wasn't the most ebullient of persons, but uh, he didn't throw me out. Let's put it that way. So uh, mm. obviously, what he saw was okay as far as he was concerned. And then came the day. I'm, I'm perhaps skipping ahead here as far as you're concerned, but it's once okay. I started, I might as well keep going. By all means. Um, came the day out at Associated British Studios in Elstree in Hertfordshire, and um, where some very famous movies have been made. And uh, I got on the set, and I was introduced to James Mason. And I was, at that time, I, later on, I wouldn't have been starstruck, but I think I was then. And I thought of meeting, actually working with James Mason was a big thrill for me, as it would have been for any actor. And we did the uh, we did the scenes and they did the, uh, the setup scene, the master shots, and then, you know, cut-ins and all sorts of things. And 
seemed to go all right. Uh, um, I, I remembered that well, I only had about six lines, so I didn't have much trouble remembering them. And uh, it, James Mason being the, the uh, professional he was, was very easy to work with. He probably realized that I was nervous and so on, and he, he made it easy for me. So that in itself was, was a, a, quite an experience. It seems that uh, having someone of his stature at the time must have, uh, you know, helped even in the, in the regard that you were just getting your feet wet, so to speak. Um, we w- I definitely want to touch back upon him later because, of course, James Mason is very endless topic of discussion, you see. is a rather unique cadence, and we're, of course, going to be wondering what he did to encourage you, young man. Um, but we have to wonder what... Uh, Sorry, that was horrible, horrible, James Mason. Not my best. I'm saying nothing at this end. <laughs> well, it's an American doing like the most erudite British accent. So, but, but no, look, this is thrilling for me because I finally met someone who's a worse actor than I am. I love it. Yes, Stephen, that's on record. <laughs> I never claimed to be one, but I play one on television. There was a series of commercials we had back. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on television. Oh, wow. I don't know if they ever made it over to the UK, but oh, they ran for all through the 1970s. And it was a way to sell you a a, a pill, I think, or something, some kind of medication. (laughs) Anyway, I digress. So were there any other uh, uh, first beyond the first impressions you had of Stanley um, and your audition? Were there any other? lasting impressions that stuck with you from uh, your time on the set with him? Well, the, the, I was shocked. In fact, perhaps even scandalized would be the word at, at one point um, where, uh, as I said, I, I, to me, James Mason, we're, we're talking about, uh, we're talking about the, uh, the gods of acting. And uh, at, at one point he, he dried, he just forgot his lines uh, at what he was going to say at one point. And Stanley Kubrick um, was sitting, as directors do, just uh, just about 10 or 15 feet away. Um, I don't know, maybe he was uh, maybe he was impatient. He wanted to get the shot done. He had a whole schedule to keep to. And he said, to, oh, for Christ's sake, Mason, come on. Remember your goddamn lines, will you? And I was just horrified because you didn't speak to James Mason like that. I mean, I thought, no, you know, you can't do that. I didn't didn't say anything, of course, but it was where I I learned very much the truth that uh, with with Mr. Kubrick, you, um, uh, he, as I said earlier, he didn't suffer fools gladly. Mm -hmm. And even if you were a megastar, um, you could still get the the rough edge of his tongue, as they used to say, right. and uh, uh, you know. So uh, I thought, my God, if he'd say that to James Mason, what would he say to me if I forgot a line? So <laughs> I was very careful to try and you know get through my shots as quickly as possible. Hmm. Now, prior to uh, going on set, had you any uh, familiarity with Nabokov's novel? Had you read it or heard about it? Oh, I'd heard about it because it was um, uh, it was already you know quite scandalous uh, mm. and and there was a lot of uh, 
uh, a lot of controversy about it. It wasn't quite up to the um, the the uh, the fury that happened over Lady Chatterley's lover, but it was still pretty well. Um, uh, it, it, was, it caused a lot of controversy, and did, as did the movie, because who were they going to cast? In the movie, they couldn't really cast a 13-year-old because that would be, I think, it would have been illegal in Britain to do that. Um, uh, and who were they going to cast? Was it right to have a young young woman, uh, albeit an actress, um, playing in such a sordid film? Mm-hmm. Um, as it happens, I, I, I'm not at all sure, looking back on it, having seen it, it was all that, all that sordid. Um, uh, but... Uh, there you go. I'd, so I'd certainly heard about the film, and I thought it, it was it was great from my point of view. Hey, this is a this is a big production instead of the, the during what night, which is a very low key. I think it was black and white actually, um, a low key, low budget production. Uh, this was a, a, a if not a blockbuster, then it certainly was going to be a, a well regarded movie. And mm. so, uh, you know, that from that point of view, it, I was uh, really thrilled to be doing it. I seem to recall that I was one day on the set and I got paid um, 60 pounds for that movie, um, which now would be about um, looking at the thing. It would now be about 200 pounds, I guess. Right, so that, right. that wasn't bad. It's a practical, practically a king's ransom for a boy of 18. <laughs> it seems so to me at the time. Right. And now during the scene in Lolita, uh, which you were a part of, the scene at Camp Climax, uh, of course, the Camp School for Girls, that (laughs) that title, the the name of the camp. And um, uh, for some of our listeners who may have not yet seen Lolita, and you must, um, you played the son of Mrs. Sedgwick. And in that scene, Humbert Humbert, played by uh, James Mason, of course, he goes looking for Lolita. And first he speaks with you as the only boy on camp. Can you tell us any other particulars about shooting the scene? Well, uh, go it on. was fairly obvious that if you read the dialogue, and I guess I made it even more obvious, uh, perhaps by mugging a bit, that um, uh, Charlie was... Um, was uh, on intimate terms with Lolita, and uh, certainly that uh, that the script seemed to bear that out, and uh, that's what made Humbert Humbert so uneasy about the whole thing. He felt mm. he his position with his what he'd like to have been his position with Lolita had been um, preempted by this spotty youth. Um, so <laughs> so mm-hmm. there you go. It was. Uh, he was, he was, he, and he played it beautifully, of course, as, as you would expect. He was very uneasy. Well, I was, uh, I was um, sneering in effect, as if to say, what, uh, you, you are interested in Lolita? Forget it. Do you work here? Yeah, sort of. I didn't think you were a camper. No. This is a girls' camp exclusively, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm Charlie, Mr. Sedgwick's son. Oh. You visit the place, I suppose, from time to time. No, I live here. Oh, are you the uh, only boy living in the camp? The only one. Do you know a girl called Lolita? Dolores Hayes? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know her. Well? Well, I see her around once in a while. Oh. Hi, Mother. What are those sheets doing there? You know they belong in the laundry room. 
She's almost packed, Dr. Humbert. We haven't told her anything. Poor man. Now, obviously, Kubrick would have been fairly meticulous in overseeing his direction of the scene, but as we know, also malleable in the way he would let actors uh, perhaps present their own ideas in the moment. Uh, do you have any recollections of uh, that and or like, you know, his methodology in approaching how you came to the role? To be honest, I don't. Now, that may be partly because it's a hell of a long time ago, mm-hmm. but also um, I got the impression that, I mean, let's be honest, I was playing a small part. Now, it may have had, a, 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 in fact, it did have a uh, an important um, meaning within the the uh, within the movie, but um, it was a small part. I had about six lines. He obviously decided that um, it, as long as the kid can say his lines, he won't forget them, and he'll he'll stop on his mark, and he'll you know turn where I tell him, and so on. Just let him do it. Let's get him out of it, and let's get on mm. to the next important scene with Shelley Winters or Peter Sellers or whoever else was uh, in the movie. That, by the way, was my great regret. I I certainly wanted to meet uh, James Mason, and um, looking back, I wouldn't have minded meeting uh, Shelley Winters either. But that's another story. Um, but um, I was uh, sad that I didn't get to meet Peter Sellers on that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but which we did later. Um, I did another at least one, I think maybe two movies with Peter Sellers. And I did get to know him very slightly as, as if anybody really knew Peter Sellers. Yeah. Him, so. Yeah. Right. Do you recall where that scene was shot or is that too technical? Uh, the, the scene, the scene at camp climax was oh, shot. Yeah, that, on was, a that was just, uh, that was just uh, set up on one of the sound stages at uh, Associated British in Elstree. Elstree then was, the it was the sort of Hollywood of of the UK, right? Because they had you had MGM Studios there, which ironically I would later work at. Um, you had another studio there, I forgot which now belongs to the BBC, and you had Associated British, which was independent. And so, and in a small area, um, Elsie was quite small, well, still is. Um, three studios made it the sort of film center of the of the UK. Not so much now, as because Rank has has done it with Pinewood and uh, mm-hmm. also uh, one or two others. But no, it was uh, it was on the soundstage and uh, uh, it was exciting. It was it was great to do, and um, I will always um, I will always remember it. Even though, of course, as with many actors who hate watching themselves on screen, I have uh, sat in the cinema and seen that movie. And I love the movie, but then I cringed and probably turned a, a deep crimson when I saw my scene and saw myself on screen and thought, oh, dear, I think I ought to try another profession. But yeah, that, <laughs> much, much, much better actors than I have um have admitted that they hate watching themselves on screen. It just is difficult for them. It's very common. I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Peter Sellers was one of the actors who, you know, felt that way about, I mean, it, it can, I imagine be for a humble person who's constantly striving, especially an artist who's striving to reach that next plateau. It might feel a little bit narcissistic to sit there and watch yourself blown up on such a giant image and that kind of thing. But regarding sellers were curious what other uh peter sellers films 
you worked on since you brought him up. Yeah, well, I I uh, I worked on a film. He one of his um, uh, Clouseau films, uh, a shot in the dark. I think. It okay, was. all right. I played um, a nudist in the famous uh, scene in that film where he escapes with El- Elka Summer, I think it was, uh, into the nudist colony. And uh, there was they, they, this was at um, this was again this was at MGM in uh, in Elstree. <laughs> and where do you think you're going? I do not think, sir. I know where I am going. I am going to the recreation area. Not like that, you're not. What was that you said? I said you're not going to the recreation area like that. I am Inspector Clouseau of the Sûreté. Oh, how do you do? I'm Turk. I am here on official business, and I am looking for someone at the recreation area. Not unless you take off your clothes. You, sir, are under arrest. Arrest? What for? For making lewd and suggestive remarks to an official of the French government. Lewd and suggestive remarks? Also for indecent exposure. Doesn't anyone wear any clothes around here? No. What? This is a nudist colony. A nudist colony? Right. And nobody gets in unless they take their clothes off. What, uh, all of them? All of them. Right down to your moustache. You know, we were actually wearing a slight leotard, but it was all carefully masked uh, to appear nude. And in between shots at one point, we were standing around. I thought, well, nothing ventured, nothing gained. I wandered up to him and um, and said, um, Mr. Sellers, of course, you won't remember me. Think later on, I thought, what a stupid comment. Of course, he wouldn't remember you. never met me before. Um, uh, and I said, you, I, I was in Lolita. He said, oh, and I said, um, and it was, uh, you know, I'd meet you then, but it's, uh, just wanted to say it's a great honor to be working in the film with you. He said, oh, yeah, all right then. <laughs> that was that was it. I, I was later told that I did rather well. That I, I got that many that many words out of Mr. Sellers, so I thought, well. Wow. Right, right, right. Have, have you seen, this is a side question, have you seen the um, Beatles Get Back documentary that Peter Jackson created? No. There is a visit uh during a particularly acrimonious week in which the Beatles are kind of not all speaking to each other. And Peter Sellers shows up on the scene um, and just kind of hangs out with them on the soundstage. I believe John is not there. Um, And it's very awkward. It's like the latest piece of evidence, if you will, for the public to see how difficult Sellers seem to have found it to just kind of be in his natural skin and he walks in and you or I would be thinking like, Oh, you know, great. He's coming to hang out with the Beatles. And this is great to see, you know, two pop icons, uh, you know, entities rather the Beatles and Peter Sellers just kind of hanging out, but it's not quite cringeworthy. It just does make you feel a little awkward because he doesn't seem to be able to, just settle in and um you know for those of us who love peter sellers it's just another story in the lore about how painful it it, it seemed to him to just be himself whereas you or i would be like oh i'm hanging out with the beatles and especially if you know (laughs) 
given that he's a famous person, you would think he would kind of at least, you know, hold his own kind of, you know, in the banter. But no, it's just it's it's really rather awkward. Um, Well, I think this underlines what you're saying. What I've got a a really long um, biography of him. I think it's nearly 800 pages and it's mm. it's. it's supposed to be the definitive biography. And as you read it, you more and more realize that, or believe, that Peter Sellers didn't know who he was and had no idea of what sort of person he was off camera or off stage. Mm. He he found it difficult to react to people because he didn't know who he was supposed to be. He was only ever happy once the director said action or, you know, the curtains opened uh, metaphorically. But but that he was simply an unhappy man once he left the soundstage, um, and I'm I'm glad I I I've never I mean I'd love to have had even one tenth one fiftieth of the talent of Peter Sellers, but I'm glad I don't feel that way about my own self. Yeah, and indeed you did say that you know you may have gotten more words out of him. His- <laughs> yes actual himself than uh, perhaps many other people. I guess that's what I was trying to say with respect to his appearance uh, in the documentary. It's it's, as though once he walks in, you can see it in the the glint of his eye that he's, oh, their cameras are rolling. Um, Who should I become? And it's it's almost sad in a a way. Oh, it is. I think it was a very, very sad life. Because he never gets it. While you continue to watch him hanging out with the Beatles, he, he just, he doesn't figure out who should I be right now, which character, anybody but myself. Yeah. Sad. Um, Aren't we lucky? Yeah. To be comfortable in one's own skin. Yeah, is... I mean, whether no matter what sort of person you are, is at least if you can accept what ones you yourself are, then you've got a fighting chance of being able to to relate to other people. Whereas Indeed. if you have really have no idea of who am I, who am I supposed to be, what am I supposed to be? How can you how can you have relations that way? I don't know. Indeed, indeed. To know thyself can be a form of mastering your own life. Yeah. I'm still small... working on it. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> I don't know that I'll ever get there, nor that maybe I want to. I mean, if the journey is better than the destination and all that. But um, with respect to one final question about uh, the scene at Camp Climax, do you have any other uh, memories specifically about working with Stanley um, during that scene? Any other uh, particularly particular memory that jumps out to you, something you could share with our listeners? Well, the the one thing about uh, Stanley Kubrick that, uh, that, that always struck me was I it, to this day I couldn't tell you uh, because I can't really remember what his what he sounded like what his voice was like because he didn't actually uh, he didn't say that much but he had as anybody who's seen photographs of him the most the uh, strongest uh, uh, eyes his eyes were piercing mm. and occasionally hostile it seems to me and. Uh, he was not just sitting there on the set in his chair. He was not a person that you could ever miss. He didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to jump around. He just had to look at you and you would be acutely aware of who he was and what he was doing. Um, 
the person that uh, I, I felt at the time, and looking back, I would still think it'd be far better to be on the right side of than the wrong side of. Mm. Indeed. Did he um, have any uh, words of encouragement or not? Was it something that uh, perhaps is lost to uh, the time of memory? I, I, I wish I could say he did. He, he didn't... Uh, he didn't say thanks. Okay, that's it. And and you know, it's uh, this is something that a lot of people who've uh, who've never been in movies, which is most people, of course, uh, but they don't realize that when you are like I was, uh, a a best supporting actor and, and often just a small part actor, when you've done your scene, whatever it happens to be, or scenes. They, it's very rarely that a, a director or anybody else would say, right, thank you very much. That was terrific, Colin. Uh, you know, okay. Um, well, okay, maybe we'll work again sometime. Mostly it's um, cut, uh, tech sound, is that all right? Yeah. Uh, camera, anything the gate? No. Okay. Fine. Moving on. Then in the uh, Moving on. Uh, Sot uh, 724, and off we go. And they'll go. And... Um, if you're lucky, the second assistant will come up and say, right, that's it, Colin. You can go back to your dressing room and that's it. Thanks very much. You will simply be, um, well, to say ignored sounds um, uh, perhaps a, a little bit too strong, but but they are too busy get, trying to get a movie out on schedule, on budget, and uh, to worry about uh, making small talk with small part actors. You're done. You will get paid, and sure. that's it. And and if you're sensitive about this sort of thing, you're in the wrong industry. Mm-hmm. Um, just learn that's the way it is. Yeah, it's as though you know you serve a utilitarian function, much the same as any other a technical person on the set. Yep. And it's interesting. So we also have wondered. With respect to the London premiere at the end of uh, September 1962 and the summer prior um, when the finished film was released, do you have any particular fond memories of uh, what life was like for you, where you were and what you were doing right around the time that your big movie came out? (laughs) Well, I was uh, uh, at the time I was living in a somewhat... um, I guess, sort of down market uh, London suburb uh, called Ballam, which which was later made famous, ironically, by Peter Sellers in one of his um, his LPs where he did uh, COD um, uh, scenes and and, uh, pretend uh, travelogues and so on. I always remember one of his things started off with Ballham. Gateway to the South, of which we always thought anybody who lived there was hilarious. Balham, Gateway to the South. We enter Balham through the verdant grasslands of Battersea Park, and at once we are aware that here is a land of happy, contented people who go about their daily tasks in truly democratic spirit. But um, I was living there. Now, uh, 
I didn't get invited to the premiere, of course, because small part actors don't. Um, It it wouldn't be possible for, I mean, you can have dozens and dozens of people doing a few lines in a movie. It would just be uh, logistically impossible to have them all coming to the premiere. So um, I I knew it was on and I I saw it, you know, the news coverage of it on television. I thought, hey, I'm in that film. How about that? Broadway at dusk. And as the lights go on, the News of the Day camera records the welcome for Lolita, the film the whole town's talking about. Introducing Sue Lyon in the title role and starring James Mason, Shelley Winters, and Peter Sellers, the MGM Seven Arts release has a dual opening in the big town. At the gala invitational premiere, Miss Winters with Chris Jones. Dressed for their roles in a Broadway hit play, they'll rush to make the opening curtain. There is a claim in the film world for Stanley Kubrick, director of Lolita, arriving with Mrs. Kubrick. Crowds on the lookout for celebrities see the popular red buttons make his appearance. The shutters are clicking and the arrivals continue. Here, Joan Fontaine and Hugh O'Brien. And now, Sue Lyon and James Mason. The capable young actress, who was 14 when she received the nod to play the title role in Lolita, shares the plaudits of the critics and movie fans with Mr. Mason, a veteran of many great starring performances. Broadway welcomes another hit for the big theater screen. But I was too busy, I think, schmoozing um, uh, other directors trying to, you know, find the... you know, get another part. Um, and at the time, by the time that came out, I had um, met um, and uh, been interviewed by successfully another famous, well, another famous film figure who was about to do his first ever film as a director, and that was Carl Foreman. Carl was, uh, it was famous as a, as a screenwriter in Hollywood, and he'd uh, he'd done, for instance, High Noon. He'd got uh, mm-hmm. he got an Oscar for High Noon, and uh, he, I mean, he was one of the major figures in Hollywood. However, he fell foul of uh, McCarthy, and because he wouldn't uh, at the hearings in Washington, he refused to denounce um, other people he'd known and, and mm-hmm. name names as to who might have been, dare we say it, a socialist. Mm-hmm. Um, he was blacklisted and he couldn't work in Hollywood anymore. So he came to the UK and worked uh, producing some uh, one or two movies and doing some script writing and decided to do a movie called The Victors, which was, um, which was quite a significant war film. It wasn't commercially successful, but it was very unusual in the way it was made and so on. So I went along to see him, and lo and behold, I got a part. And um, uh, mind you, I got killed in that one as well. But uh, never mind. <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, but that was great. So, um, you know, as far as Lolita goes, it, I, it's there. I can always say, yep, I did it. I work for Kubrick, and um, that's something that they cannot take away from me, as the song yeah. said. And um you know, let let you know. Who knows? I might even meet up with him again in sometime in the future. Alas, I never did. <laughs> Indeed, that's something to hang your hat on for life. Yeah. Of course, his producer on that film, uh, James James B. Harris. Uh, I met again. Yes, you did. And uh, your next proper film, of course, the famous The Bedford Incident. 
from the company that brought you the Kane Mutiny comes another stirring story of high courage at sea. Nerve-shattering suspense, the hide-and-seek, life-and-death search for the enemy below the icebergs. All systems go, all nerves taut, for that head-on showdown they call an incident, the Bedford Incident. Bedford can inflict more damage in 10 minutes than the entire United States Navy caused in World War II. The USS Bedford, Captain Finlander in command, war hero, naval expert, God on the bridge. I'm proud to be an old-fashioned patriot, and I'd destroy any enemy if it meant saving my country. Now, what in the hell is wrong with that? But how far would you go to destroy that enemy? All the way. Munsford, the correspondent who had covered all kinds of stories, but none like this. I'd like to ask you some questions. Your story? No, 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 off the record, for me. For instance, what is going on? The key links in the chain of command that must hold out through the hell they call the Bedford Incident. Ensign Ralston, waiting for the order no man wants to take. Creffel at the sonar, hearing what he couldn't believe. The doctor, who knew the thousand shapes of danger, but had never seen danger like this. What the hell do you think I am, some kind of a joke around here? I've been an officer in the Navy for 20 years. I've saved more men than you have in this ship. Who the hell are you to tell me how to run my business? When you've done as ordered, don't sedate him. I want him back here shot. And the observer, one-time enemy, now alleged a lie. A German commander in the free world's high command. You are in the power here, Eric. It is not a force. It is just you. You mean you're trying to say that uh, you consider me desperate? No, Captain. To be frank, I consider you frightening. Port lookout. Snorkel broad on the port bow. Range about 800 yards. Sound general quarters. All engines ahead, two-thirds. Snorkel bearing 090. Head directly for the snorkel. Take up this action, or you force them to fight. Fighting men, ready to bleed and die, but who first want to know who hides behind the mask of command. not an incident. It's the works. It was directed by Jimmy Harris, and um, we're wondering if you were able to uh, get an audition and thus the job on the back of working on Lolita. I don't know if Lolita had anything to do with it, to be honest. Um, I didn't see Harris before I got the part, uh, but uh, I, I was auditioned for that, and it was a read-through again, and once again, I, you see, I was good at read-throughs. I was good at auditions. I said to you uh, before, I, mm -hmm. I I had a bit of pizzazz, and I could go in there, and they probably thought, hey, this guy's got a little bit of uh, a little bit of a spark to him. Let, let's see what he's like. And by the time I was on the set, it was too late. Um, but um, that that was something that was working with a lot of people that I I had I. Uh, I hugely looked up to, I mean, for a start, Richard Widmark. I mean, yeah. 
bow towards Mr. Widmark uh, for forever. Sadly, he um, he was uh, in a bad mood practically throughout that movie because I later heard that he had he had two, not one, but two ulcers, Ooh. and they were uh, giving him. Per, you know, permanent discomfort every day, and mm-hmm. uh, he 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 uh, he wasn't a happy man doing that movie. But nothing, he, he took it out on the, the cast or anything. But you could tell he was very happy. But I got to work with um, Mr. Poitier and Marty Balsam. Yes, yes. And uh, I'm talking. Oh, and Eric Portman, who I a, a British actor who I'd long admired, um, whose career went back forever. But I, just let me tell you one incident that had in a way, nothing to do with that movie, but it is perhaps the highlight in terms of film of my career. And that is, we were filming one day. This was at um, Shepparton in South London. And we were filming one day, and it came to lunch break. And so we often used to go off as a group and take a table in what the American film is called the commissary. It's generally called just a canteen in the UK mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. or a restaurant. And so we'd all sit at a table and, and chat about things. And uh, it was uh, it was magnificent talking to these people. But this particular day, I was a bit late getting there and uh, there wasn't room at the table where the, the other cast members were. And I looked around and went, well, where the hell am I going to sit? Ah, there's one table over there and there's a there's there's an old man sitting at it a fairly small old old man diminutive and there's one chair left just him and this this chair and I went over and said excuse me um is this taken he said no I said may I sit here he said yeah sure and I sat there and we made very lightweight conversation there were you know it, it wasn't sort of friendship at first sight it was just one of those things we chatted throughout lunch um and in the end i said well thank you very much nice to meet you and uh i left like all the way through i kept thinking to myself i know this guy i mean mm. I've, I've i've seen him on the screen I, I i just know who he is but but who is it and do you know who it was it was <laughs> edward g robinson wow Oh, wow. That is the highlight, as far as I'm concerned, of my whole career, that I had lunch with Edward G. Robinson, even though at the time I didn't realise it was Edward G. Robinson. I wonder what he was doing in 64. I'm I'm thinking he may have been Soylent Green. Yeah. Um, Uh, No, that was 70s, wasn't it? Yeah, that was 70s. That was 70s. This was... um, This was Bedford. I don't know. He was over at Shepparton for some reason. And um, just sitting by himself, and we had lunch. And um, I'm sure he wouldn't have remembered it for the rest of his life, but uh, <laughs> brief though it was. But um, it sure was a thrill for me. Well, he didn't get a job on the Dirty Dozen. You did. And we're going to get to that <laughs> in just a moment. You, you, you mentioned working opposite Poitier, and, of course, he won the BAFTA uh, Best Actor Yep. By that time. And Oscar. Yeah, sorry. and that's right. Yeah, sorry. Um, he did win the Best Actor Oscar and the BAFTA. That's right. Thanks, Stephen. Um, so I imagine for a young actor, you were very nervous uh, working opposite someone of his stature. Did you uh, do you have any memories of uh, your time acting together? Yeah, I, uh, by that time, that was, I can't think, I think it may have been my fourth film, 
Um, and I wasn't really so much nervous anymore. I'd realized that once you're on set, whether whether the person you're with is a star or not, you're 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 all there doing the same job. Um, this is not to say that I I ranked myself equal with these people. Of course I didn't, but um, I I just found it really um, both interesting and and uh, uh, a, a great buzz to be able to to sort of just sit and chat to Sidney Poitier, who was very nice, unfailingly pleasant, and uh, no big star um, uh, image or, or, or attitude from him. He, he came along as a, as a jobbing actor, as they would have said, and that was what he, he did. And I tried to, to watch the way he worked. And, and, and as I said, people like Marty Balsam and, uh, uh, and Richard Widmar, for that matter, and see if I could learn anything. It, it would have been foolish of me just to have, you know, just watch them without trying to think, now, see the way he turned the camera then. I mean, I could remember to do that, you know, and so on. Um, yeah, so it, it was uh, it was a great thrill, but I did have I had a I think a, a couple more lines in that movie than I'd had in Lolita or something. So I had to remember where I was supposed to be at any one time and uh, uh, what you know what I was supposed to do. What is he doing, making U turns up there? Commander Potter, sir. Yes. Captain's compliments, sir. He said you should be in your GQ station. That's in sick bay, sir. Will you put these on, please? Sure. Meantime, I'll climb topside and check what's going on. I'm sorry, sir. That's against regulations. Which regulations? This section's been compartmented off, sir. Watertight security in case we take a torpedo, sir. Well, I, I appreciate the realism, sir. Oh, that's extremely good. Commandatory. But since it's only practice, how about a little cooperation, eh? I'm sorry, Mr. Munsford. What kind of an attitude is that? That's a captain's attitude, sir. He'd chew me out. I'm sure you understand. Ready, sir? Yeah. We've tried to cooperate, sir. We've had the typewriter installed for you. This way, sir. The new medical officer, Lieutenant Commander Potter. So it was... Um... It was, it was interesting. It was, uh, it was a, a very, very nice movie to have been in. It was, I think, it was a damn good movie. It, it never really made much of an impression, but I, I think it was very good. Oh yeah, I've seen it. I enjoyed it very much. I'm sure Stephen has. Yeah, well, I, I saw it years ago and enjoyed it, and I watched it again last week in preparation for this, and it's yeah, I still enjoyed it. Yeah, it was probably 15 years ago when I first saw it on television. I think. So um, yeah, I'm not hit hit. Here's something. I'm sorry to interrupt you there. That you saw it on television. Now, this is something which is one of the great, I must admit, irritants for me uh, with regarding the movies I did, because they do come up on television. Um, I'm not sure whether the latest has been shown. Maybe it has, but it probably has. Certainly, Dirty Dozen was, and the Victors has been, and Bedford Incident, so on and so forth. And Almost every time, I mean, at one time, it seemed to be that DD used to come up every other week. It was on one channel or another. And somebody, I guarantee, when I was by then working at the BBC, would say, hey, I see uh, your movie or one of your movies is on. I'd say, oh, yeah, yeah. And say, yeah, you lucky sod. They'd say, that's more money in your pocket, isn't it, with repeat fees and everything? You must be really doing well. And I had to 
point out that no, I don't get a penny for any of those movies because there was no agreement at that time for repeat fees, uh, other than for the stars of the movie who negotiated their own rates. But for we, right. we small pilot actors, we don't get a damn thing out of um, uh, out of any of these movies, and uh, you know, so it. Well, that's life. I mean, it would only be a few pounds anyway. But uh, there have been times I've watched and I thought, mm, I wouldn't mind a check in the post, you know, but sure. now you don't get anything. Residuals, yeah, probably. Residuals, as they call in the States, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to ask, how did you get the job on The Dirty Dozen? Because it's such an iconic film. Well, indeed. Um, I had an agent, an agent uh, called Neil Landor, uh, who was a, a, not just my agent, but he was sort of a lifelong friend. And um, he phoned me up one day and said, look, they're making an, uh, an American movie uh, in the UK, and uh, it's from a novel, it's just done well, and they're, they're looking for various American accents to be in it. And, and I've got you a, uh, an interview for that, if you want to go on. I said, what do you mean, if I want to go? Please try and stop me. So I went along, and... Uh, who was it? Was um, the director whose name utterly escapes me? Um, and um, who directed Dirty uh, uh, Robert Aldrich? Robert Aldrich, for God's sake, only one of the most famous directors in Hollywood history. I've forgotten <laughs> his name. Robert Aldrich was there, and Harrison was there, and a couple of other people uh, from MGM. And um, they had, I had done uh, the year before a series. This was the high spot of my of my acting career. It wasn't on film. It was television for the BBC, a series of um, dramatic musicals um, called Songs of the American Civil War, Songs of the Wild West, and Songs of Chicago in the Roaring Twenties. And they were uh, produced and directed by a famous American musician called Buddy Bregman. And I had uh, I'd had lead roles in these along with a then- comparatively little known actor called Donald Sutherland. Mm-hmm. And he and I were more or less at that time on about the same level in terms of having been ever anybody having heard of us. Little did I know that he was about to take off like a rocket and leave me so far behind that, uh, you know, I'd never recover. But um, they they got a hold apparently of the, the videos as they then were um, of these musicals and watched them and thought, yeah, okay, actually. Yeah, there, there's some, because uh, Don was also in these musicals. So they, yeah, I think we can use a couple of these people. So they, yeah, they said, okay. They, they hired me, gave me the part of Seth Sawyer. Sawyer, SK, 20 years hard labor. And, uh, Don Sutherland was also in it. I won't go through the cast because everybody knows who was in it. You know, it was. Uh... Now, I had something happened. It happened in between doing these musicals and Dirty Dozen that may have, uh, well, it made an effect probably on the rest of my life and certainly in the rest of that movie. I was filming the third of these musicals at Ealing Studios uh, in London. The old uh, Ealing studios that were now owned by the BBC and used them uh, for to make you know, various programs. Um, and at one point, we uh, we were there and they had the lunch break uh, shooting. I think it was the second day. And this cast 
Don and various other people and Buddy Bregman went out and we were kicking, uh, just tossing uh, around in between the, the, the base studio buildings, the sound stages, uh, an American football, which Buddy Bregman had brought with him, which was signed by all the members of the San Francisco 49ers, I think it oh. was. And um, somebody decided to kick it and hoofed it way too high. And it went straight up and onto <laughs> the roof of one of the generator buildings, which are about the same height as a soundstage. And oh, hell, what's going to happen to that? And uh, Bregman himself said, I oh, don't worry about it. The studio, the studio staff will get it. Don't worry. I said, no, 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 buddy. I said, buddy, please. You know me. I'll get it. So I get onto this ladder which is attached to the side of the building. And I climb right up to the very top. And I step off the onto the roof. And I look around, they shut down. Can you see it? I said, no. They said, well, come down. I said, well, I'll just have a look and see if I can see it anywhere. Bad move. Because the roof was glass. <gasps> and Whoa. you should use duckboards that I didn't. Cut a long story short. I woke up in hospital two weeks later. Oh my God. I had been comatose for two weeks. Wow. And falling down, I had fractured my skull and my eye socket and my cheekbone, both arms, oh my, my God. five ribs, and my right femur. Well, that was the end of that particular music. I didn't, I couldn't, they obviously had to recast it quickly and, and so on. But that, that, Okay, I recovered from that pretty well. I certainly recovered from that. I went on to, uh, I mean, I was only 25, I think, when this happened. Um, so I recovered, and but it did leave me with one physical drawback, which was that I'd smashed my left elbow into so many pieces. The surgeon who came to see me said, I gave up. He said, I, found, I, I counted 62 pieces of bone in your elbow, and I gave up after that. He said, I tried to put the damn thing together. And... The only thing they could do was fuse it so it was bent slightly. I could still mm. pull it in, but I couldn't straighten my arm. And it, to this day, it's still bent. Wow. So nobody noticed when I went to the uh, read-through for the Dirty Dozen. Spool forward. Uh, we get to the first day. of They were actually going to do a day of rehearsals out at MGM in, in uh, Elstree. Um, strictly speaking, or wood, but then we call it Elstree. And um, it, because and they had a U.S. ex drill sergeant, U.S. Army drill sergeant, who's going to try and make us look like we'd had been soldiers. And so he said, "All right, you guys line up there." And Bob Aldridge is watching. And I thought, "What am I going to do? Uh, I have to fake it." And so he says, "Right, uh, uh, sorry, I just hit the mic. I'll get my rattle that way." Um, he said, uh, "Attention!" So we all stand to attention. Except me, my right arm is standing as it should be, rigidly downwards. My left arm is, is hooked halfway up at about waist height. And the guy, this uh, drill sergeant walks on and says, uh, yeah, you gotta, you got to straighten your arm, you know. I said, yeah, I'm, I got a bit of rheumatism in my arm, my elbow. It's a bit sore. And Aldrich looked at me and said, yeah, is your arm okay? And I said, well, it's fine. It's fine. It'll be, it'll be okay. It's just a bit, a bit you know. Uh, okay, and Aldrich looked a bit dubious about it. Well, it wasn't. And if you have ever seen the movie, mm -hmm. and, uh, and if not, uh, next time you do see it, or if you have, next time you do see it, you, as the camera goes on, you will notice that one of the soldiers, one of the dirty dozen, does stand to, in a rather peculiar way with his left arm bent and his right arm straight. 
well, that was me. And mm. the problem was that, that Bob Aldrich, well, he, he had the choice. He could just sack me there and then because the movie, they hadn't started shooting. Well, for some reason, thank God, he didn't. Um, but he was forced to, to some extent to shoot from my right whenever he, if he wanted me to, to be waving my arms about because otherwise it would look a bit odd from then, which may have meant that he decided early on that he was going to have as few shots of me in the movie as possible because, you know, the, the movie was more <laughs> important than one small part actor having to be protected from his, his crooked arm. Right. And that's, that's one of the stories that I don't think most people would know about Dirty Dozen. Well, and it certainly puts the notion of uh, being grouchy because you have two ulcers to shame. <laughs> when you show up after falling through ceiling glass and surviving that and then going to work on the Dirty Dozen, I'm just saying maybe give yourself a bit of a pat on the back for that because that is, you know, the essence of, uh, if I may, that's the essence of the show must go on. <laughs> Well, yeah, I listen. I, it was the biggest break of my whole career, and it was also earning the most money in my whole career. And so I wasn't about to give up on it unless they slung me out. One story uh, from Dirty Dozen um, we were all actors of a sort in my case, except uh, Trini Lopez, of course, uh, though then a very, very big uh, uh, as a singer, as nobody guitar player, entertainer, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, Trini's still, still very much alive and with us, but um, he was a big star at that time and uh, as a musician. And this was his first acting role. So at one point, they have a scene where we're in a yard outside the huts where we're all living and we're practicing uh, lethal combat. We get ourselves hurt, right? Don't you shut up, huh? What's the matter with you? Think you're fighting to save your mother? Oh, why don't you lay off? Can I just show you how to do it, huh? All right. And so we're all supposed to be uh, how to how to get a hold of a German soldier and get your arm around his throat and all the rest of it or, and so on. And they have instructors there. And well, one thing I, I did know, and I, I think I've done it in one movie before, is how you fake it. Um, it uh, how you throw a punch and appear to hit somebody and they pull their head back at the last minute and on camera, it looks fine, but you're not actually hurting anyone. Well, Nobody told Trini any of this. So uh, Bob Aldrich said to Trini, he said, now, look, I'll tell you what we do here. You and uh, you and Sawyer, you're, you're, you pretend to be wrestling, and then you turn him around and you get your arm on his throat like that. So, you know, he, he can't breathe, and you twist his other arm behind his back. Uh, okay? And Trini said, yeah, yeah, okay. And I said, yeah, yeah. yes, Mr. Aldrich, anything you say, Mr. Aldrich. Um, and action. Take my arm, put it around your neck. Very simple, huh? Unfortunately, as I said, Trini didn't know how you fake these things. So the next thing I know is my left arm is behind my back and is slowly being wrenched out of its socket, and his right arm is over my throat, and I am no longer breathing. And then it's all in the leverage. Oh. You better learn how to fall better than asking that up in a wheelchair. That's what I was trying to tell him. Now, you know the trouble with you? You just don't know how to fall right. And I'm going blue. And finally, Bob Owen says, cut. And I just fall down. And and he looks at me and says, um, what the hell's the matter with you? I said, I can't breathe because he was choking me. <laughs> I just laughed. 
Ah, that's a bad attitude. You're kind of rough on the little fellow, aren't you? Like to try that with me? <laughs> Poor Trinity, he was he was distraught. He thought he killed me. Um, and probably Bob just wished he had. But, um, you know, it's just one of those straight things that uh, you work with somebody who doesn't know how to uh, how to busk it. Right, right. It's a good thing he didn't have a hammer. Sorry, bad joke. Yeah. That was a big single for him, if anyone gets that. I know my dad will, if I had a hammer. That was yeah, a let, huge he, hit for Trini. Yeah. Good thing yeah, he there didn't was have later it. a cover version called If I Had a Hummer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you played Seth Sawyer with a dozen, you said no need, or earlier you said no need to mention the astounding cast, but you know, we're going to for some of our listeners. I mean, you at a young age, you got to work with acting heavyweights like Lee Marvin, Charles Bronson, Telly Savalas. Uh, of course, Donald Sutherland and John Cassavetes, uh, who later became renowned as a pioneer of independent filmmaking as a director. Yeah. Um, do you have any other memories you could share of what it was like working with those guys? Yeah, it, it was. Um, they they were ge- in general very nice. Charlie Bronson was not. He uh, he was rather surly throughout throughout the movie. Um, I don't know. I think he he wished he was back home, frankly. Um, and I, I have a feeling that his wife, Jill Island, wasn't very well at the time. But um, he he wasn't easy to get on with. Telly Savalas was a lovely guy. Um, Cassavetes was. Um, for, the, for the most part, they were a, a very nice bunch of guys to work with. Um, I, I remember Dirty Dozen as a poker game that started in April and didn't finish till they, the final wrap in late September. And um, it, it was it was almost every day, any time that uh, there was a, a gap between scenes and setups and so on, out would come the cards and off we'd go. I learned very early on that I was playing out of my league because I, I we sat down and started to play and within the first half hour, I think I'd lost 600 pounds and decided at that point that I really shouldn't be doing this anymore. Much I thought I was good at poker and I was useless up against these guys who were lifelong veterans. So I, I sort of only dabbled thereafter. <laughs> it was a much it was uh, just too much expensive a pastime. But it, they, they were nice. Uh, you know, Telly Savalas, for some reason, for years afterwards, used to send me a Christmas card, which was odd because he and I got on OK, but we were never really great, um, you oh, know, great buddies or anything like that. Um, oh, I did oh sweet. On- I, I have to I have to interrupt to ask if you don't still have them. Do you recall any of the uh, return mailing addresses because for a number of years he he lived in my hometown of uh, Montclair, New Jersey. In fact, his home is still there on Upper Mountain Avenue. Of course, no longer occupied by him duh, or anyone uh, of his family. But uh, it, it it seems there's a number of strange connections that we've. I should selfishly say I've discovered uh, to my hometown. And uh, he did live here for a long time. I'm wondering if you ever got one from the States with a, an address of Montclair, Upper Montclair. But if you can't remember, it's 
more than fine. It's been a well, long yeah, time. Yeah, sadly, I, I just can't remember really going back that far. Um, it's entirely possible they were. Um, there were two. Clint Walker was another actor who was well-known actor who was in it. And uh, he was, if you, anybody remembers Clint Walker, did a lot of Westerns and so on. A mm-hmm. massive man, massive. Mm-hmm. He was six, six and, and built like a, a barn. You know, he, he was a, a huge individual. Um, I learned one lesson is never argue politics or anything very seriously with someone who's that big. Um, because he right. actually gave me um, a lift in his stretch limo one afternoon. He was heading back into uh, back into the to West End, and uh, I gave me a lift. I said, "That's great." And for some reason, we st- I think it was a, something was in the news that day about um, oh Mississippi and uh, desegregation and so on. And we got talking about that. And I he was it rather right wing. He was a person who politically uh, and uh, I simply didn't agree with the way where he was coming from and said so. And he lost his temper. And you really, really don't want to provoke a six foot six individual a lump of muscle like Clint Walker right. into losing his temper. Um, I never got into the into the West End. He he told the chauffeur to stop at the next at the next intersection, and I was um, I exited the uh, the stretch limo. Uh, I was lucky; I exited still in one piece, I guess, in retrospect. <laughs> so, um, you know, pick your enemies if you if you're going to do that. Yes, indeed, choose your battles. Um, yeah, I mean, hmm. Gosh, don't even know how to send that up. But <laughs> I think we've all been there to some extent. You, you, you think you're engaging in a healthy uh, political discourse, and then you realize this person might want to punch me. <laughs> yes. And, and um, I, I have a very low threshold of death. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I should certainly hope so. No, you are, um, you you outlived you outlived a lot of those actors in the, the Dirty Dozen. I was going to say that it's yeah uh, yeah. You um, did. I, so what? So what was their threshold like? If you're still with us? Well, yeah, it's it's uh, it's surprising, really, that uh, that I, I'm not I'm not the only one left because Don Sutherland, of course, is still very much alive and working. And Jim and Jim, Jim Brown and uh, Stuart Cooper. Now, Stuart Tr- Cooper is certainly very much alive and working. Now, Trini, um, Trini left us uh, in 2020, actually, did Trini? Well, Trini Lopez did. Yeah, in all this 2020. Really mm, yeah. Oh, that's terrible. For, um, here am I joking about him, and I had no idea he was gone. Oh, I feel, I feel really sad now because that, uh, I, that I didn't know. I didn't know that either. I'm sorry. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, well. When I said that you outlived the actors, I actually meant you outlived the characters. In the film, uh, there was eight of the do- eight or nine of the dozen were killed before your character was killed. Yeah, you, you lasted you lasted right to the end of the film, within five yeah. minutes of the end. Yeah, that was uh, there was one the scene near the end when they attacked the chateau and they they because of the, the damage they were going to do in the chateau, they had to film it sequentially. Um, which actually didn't even need any acting for me. And that's when they blew it up. Um, it had taken them six months to build the chateau. And at the time, it was the largest outdoor set that had ever been built for a British movie. 
And um, it, it really didn't look even behind the front walls. I mean, it looked pretty much like the real thing. And when they uh, they decided they couldn't very well do retakes on it if they when it came the blowing up bit, so they just uh, planted an awful lot of explosives on it and said, "No, nah, they had three cameras there for uh, obviously for the, the main uh, characters and then for lesser characters and myself and others." And they said, now, when the when it goes up, you've got to sort of wince. I mean, this is a big explosion. Well, we didn't need to fake that because I think they put more explosives in it than they realized. And when that thing went up, you just practically jumped out of your boots. Uh, it was a hell of a big explosion. So uh, and that was my my realistic bit for that film. No acting required. Right. The old NAR. Um, and since you just uh, since we were just talking about Trini, um, Trini Lopez, I believe he left the film at some point during production. Do you know anything about that? Yes, I do. Um, the The scene was, and again, this is very near the end, where the the dozen parachute into France at night uh, into just near a woods and. Um, you know, gather ready to prepare the assault on the uh, uh, on the chateau, and we we filmed this at two thirty in the morning. We the 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 late nights. It was night for night, as they say in film. Um, it rather than faking it in daytime, it really was that time. And so we uh, uh, we all got ready to do our scenes, and I could see the director Bob Aldridge and. And others sort of gathering around and chatting vigorously between themselves, and and uh, something seemed to be going wrong, and we wondered what it was, and and so on. And uh, finally, they uh, they spoke to I think it was Charlie Bronson and uh, and uh, Lee Marvin, and they put in they said we're putting in an extra scene here. Oh well, yeah, that's right. So we're all we've got to we gathered there and and. Uh, Okay, what we expected them to say was that Bonds would come and say, yeah, they're, they're all here. Okay, we're, we're all here. Let, let's get going. But instead... Where the hell have you been? We're six minutes late. We've been looking for Jimenez. And? We found him hung up in an apple tree. His neck's broken. You mean he's dead? That's exactly what I mean. Well, we all looked around and thought, What? What the hell are they playing at here? This, mm. this is—it's it's going to be the 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 eleven who attacked the chateau. This is crazy. What the story was, I later heard was Frank Sinatra had done a movie with um, our director, and they had not got on well because uh, Mr. Sinatra is a was a man of uh, very definite opinions on almost everything. He he didn't like being directed. He'd like to direct himself and decide what to do. And uh, our, our director was, uh, you know, didn't like this. He was a strong personality as well. And uh, he wanted to, uh, I mean, he, when you think of it, he had to be a strong personality. When you think of whatever happened to baby Jane, and he had to control Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, who mm -hmm. hated each other for whatever it was, two months of filming on that thing. It shows you he could be pretty darn strong himself. Anyway, Sinatra stormed off the set in this other movie, vowing he would never work with him again. Um, 
Sinatra and Trini Lopez were quite good friends. Sinatra had helped Trini Lopez in his early career. And it seems that he had had a word in Trini's ear and said, oh, you know, you're not getting treated properly on the movie. They haven't given you enough lines and so on. Why the hell don't you just not show up and so on? And, and Trini had apparently um, been talked into it and had just decided uh, that he wasn't going to show up. He was walking out of the movie um, just before the, the explosion and just before the attack on the chateau. And so, but nobody knew about this until he just didn't show up for work. And so they had to frantically write in a scene to say that he died parachuting out of the plane. Mm. Um, so that's what happened there. Wow. That's interesting. I, I don't think anyone would have been able to guess that watching it for the first time in 67. No, it, it was it was well written in, wasn't it? The situation, the fact that one of the twelve didn't make the make it. Well, it sounded perfectly reasonable. I mean, yeah. I think right, right. That's parachute jumping, and these people that don't forget are, are, are people who all of us that weren't paratroopers. We'd never jumped out of a plane before, so we mm. were jumping out of a plane, coming down near a forest in the middle of the night. Hell, I would have thought several probably would break their necks under those circumstances. So the fact that it was it was Trini didn't surprise i think the audience at all and it certainly it certainly wasn't going to be you because you were used to falling long distances without a parachute well I exactly I, I, <laughs> I, I, think, I think i was better without one <laughs> ah stephen for the win sorry do not apologize for that joke um since we're talking about um some of the tensions that may have arisen on the set, including uh, whatever it took for uh, Trini to stop coming to work. As we understand that there were tensions between Lee Marvin and Charles Bronson, both very, you know, kind of prototypical alpha males, perhaps in real life, as well as oh, the yeah. characters they're playing. And as we understand it, they likely did not get on very well during the shooting. Did you pick up on any of that? Um, I mean, there was an edge uh, there, I guess, but um, the, the the whole set was was full of alpha males, not not just uh, not just uh, Bronson and Marvin. And of course, all I can say is that they they were uh, heavy drinkers, a lot of heavy drinkers. Lee Marvin was could uh, absorb enormous amounts of alcohol. Coat so could Telly, and so could Bronson, and so on. Never at any time on that movie did I see anything that interfered with being on set when they were needed, being ready to go, knowing their lines and going through it. Um, they, they were totally professional. So mm. whatever personal uh, rivalries there may have been, um, I never saw anything that I would say was was fully professional, and I would would praise them for that. But you know, we we got to. I mean, much easier for me. I, I didn't have so many scenes. I didn't have anything like so many lines. But um, so many the, drinks. The people who uh, exactly, exactly the people who the film really depended on were there, and they did their job, and they did it to the best of their ability, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And this, of course, would have had to include director Robert Aldrich. Do you recall 
any particular memories of what it was like working with him? Um, he was, uh, I mean, he didn't schmooze with the actors. He was, he expected them to know what they were doing and, and to get it done. There were, um, I can't remember. I'm not saying there weren't any harsh words between him and any of the cast. They may well have been, but, um, I can't say I remember, um, uh, anything, you know, noticeable that uh, in that. Oh, one thing I do remember, which is is wasn't actually the movie. We were doing a uh, a shot in how in Surrey somewhere on a big grassy slope where we were supposed to come rolling down this hill and uh, um, gather at the bottom. Anyway, it was a, it was a break and so on. And we were just standing around and um, one of the I think it's the first first assistant director came up and said. Hey, uh, guys, get around here. You get around. He said, I have somebody I'd like you to meet. And, um, oh, well, who's this? He's not in the movie. And I looked, and it was Cassius Clay, as he then was. Oh, my God. Um, he, wow. then, he hadn't become Muhammad Ali at that point. Well, not, not to the general wow. public. I think he, yeah. And um, what struck me, it was very curious, was he was very nice. He was he, he seemed slightly shy and embarrassed, you know. Yeah, and yeah. he got to shake hands, say, hey, he was over here to fight uh, Henry Cooper for the second time. Right, um, right. Yeah. And um, the, what struck me as curious was, I because I was on a movie with massive men, uh, as I said, uh, Clint Walker and uh, Don mm-hmm. Sullivan is pretty big. He didn't look all that big. I mean, he was what six six four, I think. Um, uh, Ali, as he later became, uh, but he certainly didn't dwarf any of any of the the rest of us. Well, he may have dwarfed Cassavetes and so on, who was who wasn't very big, but the, the, he looked pretty well, you know, average height against the rest of us. But that was a that was a hoot. Uh, to meet um, to meet the man himself uh, so it was one of the bonuses of uh, of doing that movie. You've no idea how envious I am. He <laughs> is he is my favorite athlete of all time. I mean, if there are any number of records that are made to be broken and may stand the test of time, I don't think anyone will ever win the world heavyweight championship belt three separate times like Ali did, and he was just the most. Like, what a beautiful man! Just an absolutely wonderful human being. Um, yeah, so I, I'm very jealous of you for <laughs> getting the chance to shake his hand, Colin. I know it, it was uh, it, it was quite something. Bear in mind that at that time he wasn't quite the on the throne that he was later. Of course, of course. He was he he'd fought Cooper, but had been knocked on his behind by Cooper, and and uh, they had the the infamous um, cut glove, which stretched mm-hmm. the uh, the break between rounds to about three minutes. Um, so and, and it was it was that, but he was becoming slowly the 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 legend that he would become. But um, it was still nice to look back and say, yeah, well, of course, Mr. Clay and I were good friends, as you know. Right. Well, he'd only had the one title uh, upsetting Liston and the rematch, that, of course. Yeah. Uh, at I mean, that time. Uh, yeah. As if as if that wasn't good enough. Right. Right. And, and I guess wow. I guess Jim Brown was also a pretty well known athlete at the time, wasn't it? I think Very he was. Much Jim, so. Jim I was. Think, I mean, Jim mm. Jim was a, a legendary NFL player, mm-hmm. and. Um, <laughs> I played um, 
I I once lost was playing Jim Brown uh, chess on set, and he was beating me so so uh, so soundly that I I got up and, and said, "Well, it's my chess set, and I'm going." And I and walked away. That, how child how childish can you get? <laughs> I mean, honest to God. And again, Jim Brown was was built like the side of a mountain. If you want, if you want to argue with somebody, wouldn't pick Jim Brown again. Yeah. I was going to say it's one thing to run a risk getting into a heated political debate with a yeah. guy that size, but to pack up your toys and go home, you had to <laughs> be taking yeah. a calculated risk there too. I, I think I think I may have learned a few lessons on that movie. <laughs> it certainly sounds like it. Um, so. I guess my last question about Dirty Dozen is if it's a bit of a technical one. Sorry if it's been all. How long was the shoot? If you have any recollection, um, a- any particular interesting locations where it was shot? Well, it was it was long. It was, went from April till late September, mm. um, and it was it was all shots in either at MGM. Uh, of blessed memory, it's now a food warehouse, I think, uh, mm. MGM at uh, uh, Elstree. And um, it was either shot there or on location, um, uh, on the back lot or on location somewhere in, in and around the Surrey. Um, and it, so it, we had no exotic locations at all. We we never we didn't go to France for the, the chateau. We didn't we didn't do much of anything. Um there, oh, I'll tell you one other, one quick anecdote. Uh, the scene where we have, um, we're all driving off from where we've been in training in these big old U.S. Army trucks. Now, they, they, they had to have real trucks, they decided. And they found these trucks in a field somewhere in Essex where they'd been sitting since 1946 when the U.S. Army said, well, we don't want them anymore. We just left them there. And so they... they, they uh, you know, tried to overhaul them and get them working. And they, they worked after a fashion. So, okay, off we go. And we, the dozen would be driving the trucks on the left, left-hand drive with a, a, an armed uh, guard next to us. And we're driving past, uh, supposedly driving past Lee Marvin. And uh, so the, the scene was, what we had to do was drive slowly past along this road and look left at Marvin and sneer or snarl or something. We're still the, the untamed criminals. Okay. Well, me thinking, well, I haven't had many shots in this film, so I'm going to make the most of this. So I'm driving this old thing. And uh, they were 15-ton trucks. Um, so I look out, and I'm actually looking at the camera, of course. Lee Marvin isn't there. I'm looking at the camera, and I'm snarling and sneering. Problem was, I went on a bit too long, because I didn't realize that the truck in front of me had stopped. And when I looked back, I went, metaphorically, I went, eek, and stood on the brakes. But, of course, the brakes hardly worked anymore on these trucks. And I went slammed right into the back of the truck in front. Did, didn't harm anybody, thank God, but it made a mess at the front of my truck, which 
didn't um, didn't endear me to our director, as you can well imagine. Um, but um, yeah, there you go. You see, try and hog the camera, and look what it look what it gets you. Did you uh, get any uh, ribbing from the fellow cast, and you know, in the, the subsequent socializing? Did you guys oh, well, socialize? Yeah, it was suggested that I take a few driving lessons if we're going to. Right. Um, now, well, we were at a place called um, Ashridge in, uh, I think it's in Hertfordshire, just uh, north of London. And we would leave this big estate in these trucks where, so the camera could follow us sort of leaving to go on to uh, our actual base where we were going to attack. And we had to disappear in the distance. And that it was a, we left Ashridge onto a public road, but it was very narrow. So you, it was only one, one lane in the surrounded by trees. And we had to stop at one point and the first truck would do a laborious three or 19 point turn to turn around to come back. And we all had to do this. And along comes a perfectly innocent gentleman driving, I don't know what it was, trying for 2000 or something and sees all these trucks. And it's, you know, American soldiers in uniform and, and, and stops. Now, he can't go on because we're blocking the road. And he gets up and says, um, excuse me, what's going on? What, what's going on here now? And I think it was Telly Savalas. I can't be sure of that. Couldn't resist. He said, if I were you, I'd go home and get your wife and children to safety. The balloon is going <laughs> up. And the man's hair stood on end. He leapt into his triumph and disappeared in a rapid pace in the opposite direction. He may be hiding somewhere still, for all I know, waiting for the bombs to drop. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. What, I mean, you mentioned playing chess with Jim Brown and, you know, the lovely cards that, telly would send but did you um do you have any other memories of socializing with the the guys as you got to know each other during filming um they they lived you have to realize that if if, as actors yeah we were on different levels but also uh, socially we were on different levels the major stars of this movie were were living in london and they were living in in very posh hotels i was living uh, I'm still living in Ballam and uh, a small apartment in, in South London. And these guys would go off. And I say guys because it was a male dominated film. It was almost yes, entirely, I think, there were very, very few female parts in it. Um, and so these guys would go off and they'd spend their evenings at uh, the casino or or at, um, at other places or, 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 you know, very expensive restaurants and so on. I was not <clears throat> in that part of that milieu at all. Um, I couldn't have afforded it because although I was getting paid for, for me, it was a lot of money. Um, I think I got, I got 6,000 pounds for that, which now would probably be about 30,000 or something like that. And that, that seemed a lot. Those guys were getting that much a week, maybe a right. day. I don't know. Um, right. And so, well, yeah, we could socialize on set and maybe at lunch and so on. But after hours, no, nah, it would have been, it would have been like me phoning up Buckingham Palace and saying, is, is, is Philip available this evening? I thought we could go and play dart somewhere, you know, I mean, uh. <laughs> One thing I I get I hope you have, have realized and in, 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 we're talking is um, 
I had never allowed myself to look back on those days uh, in film. And it wasn't just film, television. I did uh, 20-odd television plays and appearances and so on. But I've never allowed myself to look back once I'd left the business and gone on and joined the BBC and was, was there, spent the next 29 years, I think, it was with the BBC, um, to look back and say, yeah, you know, of course, back then I was uh, I was quite a name. I was, I was, yeah, I was a film star, you know. And I, I because I'd met one or two actors that I knew from the past, not ones I'd worked with, but ones I knew who were like me that could do a few lines in this film or a few lines in that play or whatever, but would still preen and say, yeah, of course, when you know I was really very well known in those days and so on. Mm. I think I I'm not I cannot do that. I never was well known. I never was a movie star, and I'm not gonna start pretending I was now. Because it seems to me that how how sad does that make you if you have to try and invent a past. Yeah. And yeah. and uh you know uh inflate your own ego by by telling lies like that. So um uh, at least I've, I've never, I've managed to avoid doing that. Well, you've, you know, clearly gotten across, you know, a, a real honesty about your approach to the craft and you had some really fine contributions to your own approach to acting. I have to ask if you have an opinion on what you might say would be your finest moment in acting. <laughs> I, I'm not even sure I had a finest moment, to be honest. Um, I mean, my finest moment may have been lunch with Edward G. Robinson, you know, and that was <laughs> that wasn't in a movie at all. <laughs> but as you say, they can't take that away from you. Well, absolutely. Um, can you think back on anything that was particularly important to you as an actor? Um, yeah, I think I think doing um, those musicals, which wasn't on film. Um, oh, I'll tell you, a, a, perhaps my most embarrassing moment. I'll come back to the other one. Moment. My most embarrassing moment was long before I had done Dirty um, Dozen or, or even Lolita. I'd um, been cast in a play that was going to go uh, do a tour of the U of UK and possibly come into the West End. And it was a place set in the U.S. And I would be, I was typecasting it in a sort of way, I would play the, the young man of the family who was about to go off to university, just finished high school, and play uh, football for his university. And uh, I had a scholarship and all this, and I was going to be the, the star of the family. And okay, I mean, I wasn't really built like a footballer, but I suppose I could have pretended to be a wide receiver or something. So, you know, I might have got away with it on that basis. Um, and at one point, the director said, look, Carl, um, we got a bit here where so-and-so has to change. And it's it's a bit of uh, a long change. And I, I could need you to just kill some time on stage. Now, this every actor's dream. He said, just... Uh, I mean, give me, give me a minute, give me 60 seconds by yourself downstate. What actor would love that? I mean, hell, nobody else to look at. It's just me. And mm. so <laughs> I uh, I said, right, okay. Um, <clears throat> what the hell am I going to do? Because there's no script. Um, I know I'll, I'll pretend to talk to myself. Oh, I am really looking forward. It's going to be really great going to such and such a university. Man, I'm going to be the 
greatest, greatest wide receiver they've ever seen. I'm going to be great. I better do some exercises or something. So I'm pretending to do, you know, uh, all sorts of stretched my arms and flexing my muscles and muscles I didn't have and so on. And then I decide to do some knee bends. Bad decision. Now, the theater is quiet. Nobody else is on stage. They're just listening to me in this theater. I think the first time I did it was in Theater or Nottingham. And I bent down and I'd forgotten that because I have, I have very noisy knees. And when I bent down, both my knees went crunch. So loud, you could hear it at the back of the stalls. And it was so incongruous that here is this terribly athletic young man who's going to wow the world of, uh, of football at his university, has knees that go crunch every time he bends down. I got the biggest laugh I ever got in my whole life. It wasn't even intended to be funny. I must have gone red with embarrassment and thank you for uh, somebody came on stage as directed and said, oh, hi, there you are, Johnny. Hey, you better get to, better get out to the kitchen because they want you out there. And I, okay, I'm going. Thinking, oh, please, not again. The director very kindly just suggested that I don't do knee bends in the future. Right. Um, but it provided comedy. Hell, you may have uh, uh, indirectly been the inspiration. for what, What's the character in Monty Python's Flying Circus? Oh, Conrad Pooh and his inflatable <laughs> knees. <laughs> Yes, well, (laughs) so as you mentioned, like most of your acting work, you know, in the 60s was on film and TV. And then you went on to have a really cool career working for the BBC World Service. And um, as you mentioned, you know, almost three decades worth. Tell us about it. Well, um, I'd uh, I'd realized something that you, you made the joke earlier. I've got a face for radio. It's it's now it's a it's a hell of a cliche I mean, about me, not you. Yeah, but no, no, no. But it's been <laughs> said about many, many, many people. Believe me, uh, and you know it's true. The, the, there's an an old uh, I've heard it said about in Hollywood that the camera either sees you or it doesn't. Right. And right. nobody has ever been able to work out why it the camera registers some faces. And you immediately see it and you sit up. It's got nothing to do with you're handsome or ugly right, right. or whatever. Either the camera sees you or you can go in front of the camera and you might as well wear a paper bag over your head because the camera doesn't see you. Now, I, I, just, I would love some uh, some university to, to fund a, a, a whole research into this as to why a, a, a mechanical or electronic item like a, a film camera should be able to differentiate between what it likes and what it doesn't like. Uh, but there you go. And I knew that my face never really registered. Even if I'd had wondrous talent, it didn't register on camera. So I thought, well, let's go to radio. So um, I didn't know, what can I do? Well, I like sport. Uh, let's try and see if I can get some some work uh, as a sports reporter. And again, I sort of, would say I blagged my way into it, but I'm um, convinced one or two editors that it was worth a shot and caught on and never looked back. How cool. I um, want to kind of conclude with a, uh off the boards questions you worked with marty balsam as we discussed and i'm curious if you ever heard that uh, one time his voice was floated as a possible uh 
use of the actor for um, Hal 9000 by Kubrick in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Have you ever heard that story? Yeah, I have heard that story and I believe it's true. Um, what's, what's your take on that? What would well, uh, Martin Balsam Hal 9000 sound like? Uh, well, I think he'd have been fine, uh, but I, I like I did like that. I don't know the name of who they actually got, but he who was very good. But I mean, Marty would have been okay. But incidentally, do you know do you know why um, it was called Hal? Uh, I believe so. Hal heuristically algorithmic. Go on. It was because originally in the book it's, it was an IBM. Yes, and, and the letters IBM threatened to sue them if they used it uh, as an IBM that goes crazy and, and tries to kill everybody. So they sat down and thought, I know, well, we'll screw IBM. We'll pick the next letter along. That's where H-A-L came in because of the next letters to IBM. Next letter along in the alphabet. And, yeah, I, I didn't know, uh, know that until a few years ago. But... I don't know that the uh, the science on that one is, is concluded. Uh, Stephen can... There's been a few stories. I mean, the fact is that Hal's three letters come before IBM's, which, which yeah, some, yeah. some people say that that was Kubrick's take on saying that his computer was better than IBM because he was one one before. And and the, and, and also the uh, the fact that IBM might have complained, yeah, there's a few, there's a few stories connected with that. And and yet Arthur C. Clarke said that it specifically referred to, referred to heuristically algorithmic programmed Something or other. Uh, something or other. <laughs> yes. But the yeah, a strange acronym coming from H for heuristically and then AL for algorithmic. I mean, it could have just been mm. HA and then something else. I don't know. I don't know that we'll ever know the answer, but that's part of the fun of Kubrick's universe, as it I, were. I, th- I think they actually um, tested Martin Marty Balsam and also Nigel Davenport. So we had a, an American voice, oh, a, a, right. a British voice, and we ended up with a Canadian yeah. voice in the end. Yeah. yeah. Well, I th- I'm happy enough with the voice they they they, they cast. I think mm. terrific. He famously never saw the film. The actor Douglas Rain, who voiced Hal. Douglas Rain was. He used to appear at uh, Stratford Shakespeare Shakespeare Festival in Ontario, yeah. didn't he? he was, he was he, yeah. He was a big name. He was a, a proper Shakespearean actor. Oh, absolutely. I think we lost him. And was it 2018, Stephen? 2019? Yeah, around there. Yeah. yeah. Around there. But, I mean, he had a rich life uh, and career, suffice it to say. Yeah. And there's not many people who can say they, you know, worked with Stanley Kubrick. And you are among them, my good man. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I don't regret it for a moment. It's wonderful. I'm just curious in closing, were, were there any other of Kubrick's films that you saw over the years? And if so, did you, obviously 2001, but were there any others that stuck out to you? Oh, yes. I mean, uh, Strange Love. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, which was a masterpiece as far as I'm concerned, no matter how you looked at it. It was simply, it was simply magnificent. Um uh, I'm trying to think. Nothing. Uh, I I wish that um, the Kubrick had finally got round to doing his um, his Napoleon film. Napoleon. 
Yeah. That that would have been something. I mean, he spent what was it the last thirty years of his life getting getting ready to do it, didn't he? And getting all, all, uh, all the uh, research done on it, and then then goes and dies before he can make it. Yeah. Well, the uh, the great publisher Toshin Books has uh, put out three editions now, I believe. Of uh, it's called Napoleon, the greatest film never made, and it's I've it's, got it. Yeah, me as well. I'm sure Stephen yeah. does. What's your take on it? Did you enjoy looking through those archives? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, it, it's a hell of a long read because you've got to do it properly and not at all. Mm-hmm, and, and it's, mm-hmm. it's gone. But um, yes, I, the more I looked at it, I thought, oh, damn, that's one of, that's one of the things that I think life is really unfair that he, he didn't get to make that movie. Yeah. Um, but hey, you know. These things uh, happen. Now, there's a lot of great movies that were never made and quite a few movies that never should have been made. Well, as of a few years ago, it was still in development, at least discussed on the interwebs as being in development as, I believe, a six-part miniseries event for HBO. Right. And it is, going ahead, it, it is going ahead because I spoke to uh, with Jan, Jan Harlan, who was Kubrick's producer, Colin. Uh, Jan Harlan was uh, Kubrick's executive producer on his last five or six films. And I spoke with him a few months ago and he actually showed me the latest draft of the, um, of the TV script. So right. he's been approving them as, as they've been um, coming through. So I think they're getting close to shooting that. Uh, right. the, the whole... The whole intent was supposed to be as true to Kubrick's final draft as possible, Stephen. Am I correct? Who, well, who have they cast as as the man himself? I don't uh, know. It's it's been very secret. Know. There's not much information out there, but it's it must be getting quite close because of what Jan said. Well, I should watch out watch out for that. Yeah. Well, the and um, I'm I'm uh, I'm happy to take any any lines they offer me. You know. Um... Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> the the last I learned of any director's attachment to it was going to be um, Carrie uh, Fukunaga, and he's been involved with a, a bunch of things. Uh, uh, recently, most recently, he directed the final Daniel Craig James Bond film, No Time to yeah. Die. Yeah, and it, I have to say, I mean, I was very impressed with uh, what he brought to that film and. It was one of those things where I was like, okay, you know, we can be precious about who gets to touch Kubrick's Holy Grail. Um, but if anybody stands a chance of doing something uh, that could, that would hopefully please so many people with their own perspectives, it just might be this guy. I'm, I don't know. I'm hoping he's still attached to it. Well, I shall certainly watch out for that, as I said, and uh, look forward to it. There's some new information on IMDb that wasn't there a few weeks ago. So now um, Kubrick's got a 14th credit on IMDb for writing, and it's from the Napoleon TV miniseries. Oh, ori- wow. Original screenplay announced. So this has only just gone up very recently. Is there any more information like cast on there? No, no, just the announcement that um, it's been announced and uh, Kubrick's credited with the original screenplay. So that's uh, that's looking cl- close. Yes. That's good news, isn't it, Colin? Yeah. It just, yeah. Yeah. And this has been in some 
stage of development, whether it was just chatter. I believe going back to 2015, Stephen, are you able to see? I mean, we're going on seven years of hearing this was actually going to get made. Oh, yes, it's been, yeah, it's been talked about for quite some years now, hasn't it? I mean, in earnest, I mean, for many, many years prior to 2015, that I thought the first time I remember reading, okay, this is actually being greenlit for development, was mm. going to be somewhere around 2015, perhaps even 2013. I could be wrong. I've been known to be wrong before. <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> Uh, yes, absolutely. And don't call me Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, that, yes, there's a movie I'm glad was made. Yes. Airplane 1980. <laughs> yeah. Never gets old. I think the AFI named it funniest movie of all time. And it's still like many years ago and it still holds the title. I shall never forget the uh, her reinflating the co-pilot <laughs> one of the great moments of all time in cinema and the way um the is it, is it robert hayes character who backs out yes. of the cockpit with that expression on his face yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> oh dear lord oh my gosh a movie that managed to offend everyone and no one at the same time I, I thought, I tell you, it was very brave to do it. I think it was Peter Graves. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, not, a lot of actors would be reluctant to play that character, I think, but... Uh, I mean, and you could never get away with it now, the fact oh, that no. he's, you know... With a little boy. Yeah. yeah, have you ever been in a men's locker room, Joey? <laughs> do you and, like movies about gladiators? <laughs> And surely the tallest actor to appear in a in a movie, well, maybe not ever, but surely one of the tallest actors playing the co-pilot. Mm. Yeah. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar the, was his name. The, That's right. The great yeah. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I know you. You're Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I'm afraid you have me confused with someone else. Son. <laughs> I think you're the greatest, but my dad says you don't work hard enough, except during the playoffs. The hell I don't. <laughs> it's like that moment it's just like <laughs> what was it uh, he was 6 11 wasn't he uh, 6 foot 11 I seem to recall uh, I don't know off the top of my head that would be extreme hey well we could have talked all night with Colin what a great guy I mean funny and engaging with more stories than a sewing circle full of spinsters he seems to be quite the Kubrick fan, too, talking about 2001, Strange Love, and Napoleon. And speaking of which, when the upcoming HBO series Napoleon, which is of course based on Kubrick's screenplay, finally comes to air, we will of course be here to unpack all of Stanley's boxes for you in a future episode. Not to mention the card catalog he made during pre-production. Have you seen a picture of that thing? Jesus! And it is the 60th anniversary of the release of Lolita this year, so we will have more on that coming too. As well as, of course, more episodes commemorating the 50th anniversary of A Clockwork Orange. In the meantime, have a gander over at the world's largest online community for Kubrick fans, scholars, and newbies alike, the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook. Sorry, Mark, I ain't calling it meta as well as our show's page on Spacebook, Kubrick's Universe. And don't forget to rate and review, like, share, and subscribe to the show in your favorite podcatcher. 
or just drop us a line. The light's always on, and we're always home. Watching a Kubrick film, most likely. So, on behalf of the greatest producer fella in podcasting, and my future ex-wife, Stephen Rigg, I'm your host and old engine driver, Jason Furlong, saying thank you for tuning in to Kubrick's Universe once again. Remember, take chances, do what you feel, but keep both feet on the wheel. See you next time, because there ain't no finish line. Alright, that's the take. Like it. You like it? I'll just stand here and wait for your reply. Message for you, sir. Ah, there's that arrow in the chest. Ah, let me read this. Dear Jason, I love it. Yours, Stephen. Oh, look at that. Need your little X there. That's so beautiful. I love this guy. I love this guy. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick podcast. Come back soon. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.